welcome to the latest edition of the BICOM podcast, a very special episode indeed. The first one since Joe Biden was elected as president of the United States, and I am delighted to be joined by Michael Coplo in today's episode. Michael, thank you so much for joining. Thanks so much for having me. So before we jump into things, I will let our listeners know who you are, though I'm sure they do. You are the policy director of the Israel Policy Forum. And before joining IPF, you were the founding program director of the Israel Institute. And you hold a PhD in government from Georgetown University. Um, now, Michael also writes IPF's weekly Coplo column which I highly recommend all of our listeners subscribe to if they don't already. I look forward to it every week. It's tremendously insightful um, and I always learn something new from it. So make sure to go subscribe if you don't get it already. So Michael, we're speaking now Tuesday afternoon, just a couple days after it became clear that Joe Biden has in fact won the presidential election. And before we dive into what will be you know, the majority of this podcast in terms of implications for the Middle East, I thought it'd be very useful to myself and for our listeners, if you can just give us a, an update on, on where things stand in terms of the voter count, you know, uh, Trump's claims of voter fraud, ongoing litigation. Um, he has not conceded. He has not, you know, done anything of the sort. We haven't seen that from the Republican Party. And there's been an utter lack of any type of transition process that's that's begun as well so if we could get a little background on that from you sure and uh, and thanks for the uh the unnecessarily kind introduction so uh at the moment as you point out joe biden has been uh by all accounts uh, elected to be the next president of the united states the uh all the tv networks and associated press um have have now called enough states based on uh, the vote count and projections so that Biden has uh, 279 electoral votes at the moment. To win the presidency, you need 270 electoral votes. Uh, and so Biden is going to be the next president. Uh, now, President Trump has disputed this um, in a couple of ways. The first is that he has been saying that nobody should be treated as the president-elect until the states themselves certify the results which is an interesting, uh, it's an interesting tactic to take given that the way this works every single presidential cycle, including four years ago, um, is that when the networks uh, call the states for, uh, for one person and that person is projected to have over 270 electoral votes, that's it, um, the, the transition begins to happen. Um, and it does take states a few weeks to certify the results, but that has, except in 2000, when we had this disputed election between uh, Bush and Gore, which, which people will, uh, if, you're, if you're my, certainly people will remember. Uh, if you're younger, you, you know, probably know about it anyway. Um, you know, except in, in that case where you have litigation ongoing, the transition begins to happen right away. And, and famously, the day after election day is when the winning nominee uh, sends people over to the various agencies uh, in what are called landing teams to start preparing for the next administration, which doesn't officially start till January 20th. So uh, President Trump is claiming first that until states certify the results, that none of this should happen. Second, he is claiming that there has been massive voter fraud um, in a number of battleground states that he that he's been projected to lose. Now, 
so far, the campaign has brought a number of lawsuits. Uh, every single one of them has been dismissed for lack of evidence. Uh, they seem to be making lots of allegations uh, without evidence at all. And, um, and media outlets that have investigated them have found nothing so far. Uh, but I'm sure there will be ongoing litigation. And um, one thing I'll point out is that it's an interesting tactic to claim that there's been massive voter fraud on the ballot, but only insofar as it impacts the presidential vote. Right. Um, not for Senate votes, where Republicans did better than expected, and not for House votes, where Republicans really did better than expected. Yeah. So um, I don't anticipate any of this will work. I fully expect that Joe Biden will be inaugurated at noon on January 20th, but it's gonna be a, it's gonna be a rocky couple of months to get there. Mm -hmm. So we saw just yesterday that the president fired the Secretary of Defense, Mark Esper, and there are reports that the director of the FBI and the CIA may, may be next, along with you know, more people even within the Department of Defense. Is this something normal to see from a lame duck president, or should we be concerned about this type of behavior? No, it's, uh, it's extraordinarily unusual. Um, and there are reports that there are going to be more firings and or resignations. Uh, actually today, uh, the third ranking official, um, the third ranking official at the Department of Defense, James Anderson, who was uh, Under uh, Secretary of Defense for Policy, resigned as well. Um, and there have been resignations in the last uh, day or two at the Justice Department uh, over concerns that Attorney General Bill Barr mm -hmm. is authorizing investigations into, into vote fraud that, um, that are, that are based on flimsy evidence at best. So no, this is not normal at all. And, and I'll say uh, it, it particularly worries me within the national security apparatus because a presidential transition is always a time of some, so it's always a time of chaos in, in, in some way, mm -hmm. um, even in the most orderly transition. And you have American adversaries who are looking to see what they can get away with. And the idea that you have the top officials of the Department of Defense either being fired or resigning and perhaps more to come at CIA and other places. It's just, it's not, um, it's not very reassuring if you, if you are concerned about uh, American defense posture and American stability and um, American foreign policy and national security. Yeah. So perhaps now shifting our focus more towards what, what we may see in the remaining 71 days um, as of this recording. Um, that Trump has an office um, in terms of what it means for, for the Middle East. And we've already seen reports that his administration has plans for new sanctions on Iran over its ballistic, ballistic missile program, its assistance to terrorist groups, and human rights violations. What else do you expect that we might see from Trump in the last two months of his presidency as it relates to the region? So certainly we're going to see sanctions on Iran, as, as you point out. Um, and you know, they've said that they're going to put new ones on every single week yeah. uh, between, between now and January 20th uh, and, and focus not on the nuclear side of things, uh, but on uh, ballistic missiles and terrorism uh, with, on the theory that it'll make it more difficult for President Biden to overturn those things, even if he re-enters the JCPOA or renegotiates the JCPOA. Uh, I'm fairly confident that we will see an effort on the part of the Trump administration to get other countries to sign on to the Abraham Accords as well. And that may involve more arms deals akin to the one we saw 
with the UAE, where the United States agreed to sell the UAE uh, 50 F-35s uh, and a number of drones. Actually, uh, the Trump administration formally notified Congress today uh, of, that, of that arms deal. Um, so, you know, I'm sure that we'll see an effort to do that. I think that we are likely to see an effort on the part of the Trump administration to green light some form of West Bank annexation. Mm -hmm. Whether that goes through or not, of course, really will depend on the Israeli government and whether it wants to accept one last uh, gift from the Trump administration on the way out, uh, albeit one that will be far more controversial than anything that has come before it, and you know what that will do for Israel's posture with the new administration. But uh, I'm sure we'll see some sort of effort uh, on that front from the, from the Trump administration. Um, and we also may see an effort even to uh, sanction, put sanctions on, uh, on Palestinian officials uh, also, also on the way out. So, you know, there, um, there, there very well may, there very well may be some, some chaos to come. Um, you know, certainly, uh, as, as we talked about, it's been, it's been chaotic at home. Uh, we'll see how much that extends to the Middle East before January 20th. Yeah, so speaking of, of Iran, we saw that Trump's envoy uh, to Iran, uh, Elliot Abrams, was in Israel early, early this week. Um, in fact, the day after Biden was um, projected to be the winner. So I don't know to what extent you can read into that visit if it was something, I mean, I'm sure planned in advance, but if it was still a, a normal thing for, for us to see. But he was there, you know, to essentially reassure Israel, correct me if I'm wrong, that the U.S. the U.S.'s return to the Iranian nuclear deal, the JCPOA, is highly unlikely even under a Biden administration. Um, so are we likely to see more of these types of like reassurances like like you said and, and what should we read into with, with that visit beyond perhaps what you just laid out? So um, I think you're right. Uh, I'm sure I'm sure part of it was reassuring the Israeli government. And uh, he also went to Saudi Arabia and the, and the UAE. So I'm sure that it was reassuring all of those governments that the Trump administration is going to make it as difficult as possible for a Biden administration to re-enter the JCPOA. I'm sure that they also discussed the specifics of the sanctions that the Trump administration is planning. Um, and, and certainly you can never rule out definitively that some form of actual uh, military or covert action was discussed to be undertaken in the two months that President Trump has left in office. Um, but you know that's that's that would, that, that's entire entirely uh, speculative on, on my part. Um, but I, I'm I'm sure that the focus was Iran. I know that uh, there have been some questions about uh, whether Abrams was in Israel to talk about Israeli-Palestinian issues, but that's not really his file. Right. So uh, I think this was probably Iran Iran related and, and really nothing beyond that. Yeah. So now moving on uh, to what the Biden administration will look like in its approach to the region. This is a very broad question. And, you know, after you give me your answer, we can maybe get more into the into the detail. But looking at Joe Biden, what do you see the greatest areas of divergence between what we may expect from his approach to the Middle East to be versus what we've seen from the Trump administration over the last couple of years? First of all, I think it's going to be a return to um, a more balanced policy when it comes to Israelis and Palestinians. Mm. Joe Biden is probably going to look a lot 
like President Bill Clinton uh, in terms of wanting to see the two sides cooperate and come together while still having a very, a very clear pro-Israel bent. Uh, and that will certainly be different than the Trump administration, which ha has really weighed in definitively on Israel's side on, on basically every major issue and uh, took it even further in terms of um, really cutting off all American assistance and engagement and support to the Palestinians. So uh, I think, you know, that's going to be, uh, that's going to be one big area of divergence uh, and, and annexation, uh, West Bank annexation, of course, um, embodies that where, you know, you have the Trump administration that greenlit it in the Trump plan, and we may see, you know, more moves on that uh, in the next few months, whereas the Biden administration is, is certainly not going to, uh, is certainly not going to even wink at that. Yeah. Um, you know, on the, on the wider region, it's no secret that the Gulf states uh, have been happy with the Trump administration because they have wanted to see a maximum pressure policy with regard to Iran. It's something that not only the Israeli government wanted, but the Saudis and, and the Emiratis and, and others. And Biden has signaled that he is going to look to either re-enter the JCPOA or negotiate something new in an effort to address the Iranian nuclear program. And that, of course, is going to be uh, you know, a, a very large divergence as well. Now, I would be surprised if uh, President Biden re-entered the JCPOA as is. <clears throat> I'd be surprised if uh, President Biden um, didn't try to craft a deal that um, was responsive to the critiques of the Israelis and the Saudis and the, and the Emiratis after the JCPOA both in terms of extending sunsets and also perhaps addressing other issues in the region. But um, it's, it's, going to, it's going to go back toward a posture of, of wants and negotiations. And, and I'll add that President Trump kind of telegraphed that had he been reelected, he might be looking to do the same thing. Um, so I'm actually not sure uh, that the approach itself will be different than what we would have seen under a second Trump administration, but it's certainly different than what we've seen uh, from a first Trump term. Uh, and lastly, President Trump has been very publicly reluctant to be engaged in the Middle East in a way that, um, that goes beyond what he sees as a very narrow band of American interests. And we've seen this in a number of ways from, uh, from drawing down in Syria um, to kind of ignoring, ignoring the Kurds, uh, to even to not responding to the Iranian uh, cruise missile attack on the Saudi Aramco facilities, yeah. although on that one, you know, there's uh, it's a it's an open question as to whether um, that was a U.S. decision or, or whether the Saudis actually asked the U.S. to hold off uh, in fear of igniting a, a larger regional war. Um, but I think that you know Biden's history, both as a senator and as chairman of uh, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and as vice president has generally been to take a more active interventionist approach in the region. And so I think that we will probably see uh, a return to a more expansive view of American interests in the region and an American presence. Um, I don't think that we will see the same type of pressure from the White House to draw down in places like Syria or Iraq just for the sake of drawing down. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, to the extent that, that states have had concerns about the U.S. absencing itself from the region and, and ceding ground to Russia and other players, 
I think we'll probably see that reversed under a Biden presidency. Yeah. So now we can just dive into the details of, of some of these specific points you, you brought up. Um, looking at um, this, and you mentioned this a, li a little before, uh, these normalization deals, uh, what something Biden might do, sorry, uh, something Trump might do in the last uh, 71 days of his presidency to bring in more, more countries. Um, do you think that, you know, if, if we're not going to see that over the next two months, that, it, that it's something that some of these deals that are currently in the pipeline could come to fruition under a Biden administration? Yeah, absolutely. I think the question is what these other states may want. With the Trump administration, the precedent was pretty clearly set with the Emirati deal that if you normalize relations with Israel, you will get a large arms package from the United States, one that, um, that, that previous administrations and Congresses have been, have been reluctant to green light. Now, some countries are going to want that sort of thing, and, and, and some don't care, right? For Bahrain, that wasn't, that wasn't an issue. Um, but you can imagine that there are other countries that, that may want that. And um, I don't think a Biden administration is going to be quite so eager to sell American arms to other states in the region, uh, particularly you know, unprecedented, uh, unprecedented arms in terms of quality that the Trump administration has been. But you know, I also don't think a Biden administration is, is going to take a position that says, hey, Morocco or hey, Oman, don't normalize with Israel until there's a re resolution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Mm -hmm. you know, not only do I not think that that's Biden's uh, view of the world, his, his, his top advisors, uh, Tony Blinken first and foremost, have been uh, public and upfront that they view these deals as a positive for the region. And while they would like to see them uh, leverage in some way to have progress on the Israeli-Palestinian front, they don't think that that should be a prerequisite. So uh, I think that, you know, I think these deals are likely to continue. And the other wild card is some of these states may be looking to curry favor with a new Democratic administration and, and to get back into the good graces of the Democratic Party. Mm -hmm. And it's possible that normalizing relations with Israel will help that along. Yeah. Um, so uh, I, don't think, I, I don't think that these deals are, are, are going to stop uh, with a new president. It just may be that um, it's not as much of a U.S. priority up front and that the price of the deals on the U.S. side is different. Yeah. So now shifting our attention to, to the Palestinian Authority, I mean, I think it's important to acknowledge as we're speaking a couple of hours after um, it was announced uh, that Saab Arakat, the Secretary General of the PLO, passed away after contracting coronavirus a month ago. So maybe before we talk about the future um, in terms of the Biden administration, if you had anything you wanted to, to share about what his his death means for the future of, of the Palestinian Authority and perhaps even, you know, the prospect of a two-state solution as he was the Palestinian chief negotiator. So not only was he the Palestinian chief negotiator, uh, he, um, he was, uh, I think, unique in, in a few ways. Um, one is that he, he was a two-state supporter before that was really on many people's radars. He, he was writing in support of two states um, before Oslo, back when he was a political science professor and, uh, and a, a columnist for Al-Quds newspaper. Um, so, you know, he was really, I think, uh, in many ways, at the forefront of pushing that idea within the upper echelons of the PLO. Um, second, he was one of the only, possibly the only, um, but certainly one of the only, 
high-ranking PLO and PA officials to have never served any time uh, in, in Israeli prison. Um, and so, you know, I, I think he was, uh, he was a unique figure in, in a number of ways in terms of his support of two states and in terms of his real adherence to negotiations. Um, now, he drove a lot of people crazy because he was, uh, he was a, um, a very stalwart negotiator. Um, and uh, oftentimes his, um, his, his relationship, to, uh, his relationship to, to absolute truthful facts was uh, sometimes murky, I'll say. <laughs> um, but you know, nevertheless, he, he did represent this, this absolute approach of negotiations and nonviolence and working toward, toward a Palestinian state alongside of Israel. So, um, of course, he will be replaced, uh, but the question is, you know, whether whoever replaces him will have the same amount of influence and will take the same single-minded approach in terms of the direction that he or she thinks uh, the, the Palestinians should move. Um, so we'll see, but, um, you know, he, he certainly, was, certainly was a character and, um, and dealt with everybody of relevance on the Israeli side and the U.S. side, and I know lots of people are going are gonna to miss him. Yeah, thanks for that. So in, in terms of looking at what a Biden administration's approach and relationship will be with the Palestinian Authority, can you talk about what concrete steps we might see from the U.S. to restore that, that relationship, which was severely sort of undermined and deteriorated under a Trump administration? I think we're going to see an effort to restore those relations from the very beginning, and it's going to encompass a, a few things. First is going to be a resumption of aid to the West Bank and Gaza. Now, there are a few things to keep in mind. One is that the United States in 2014, under President Obama, stopped making all direct budget payments to the Palestinian Authority over concerns about PA corruption and over concerns uh, about the prisoner payment system. So, you know, that's not something that President Trump ended, that's something President Obama ended, and uh, that's not gonna come back until, until those concerns are addressed. What President Trump did was to freeze all American spending in the West Bank and Gaza at all. So humanitarian assistance, infrastructure projects that the US was carrying out directly, uh, funding of people-to-people -people programs, um, everything except security assistance, was all frozen. So um, I think a lot of that stuff we're going to see go back. There are restrictions that did not exist before the Trump administration because the Taylor Force Act was passed during the Trump administration. And what the Taylor Force Act did was prohibit U.S. money being spent in the West Bank and Gaza in any way that directly benefits the Palestinian Authority. It did have some carve-outs for, uh, for childhood vaccines and for the East Jerusalem Hospital Network. Um, so you know, there are restrictions anyway, but I think we're going to see the U.S. resume funding in ways that are consistent with, with U.S. law. Second, uh, I think we're going to see an effort to reopen the American Consulate General in Jerusalem, which existed before really as a, a separate diplomatic mission to the Palestinians. The Consul General didn't actually report to the U.S. ambassador. The Consul General reported directly back to the State Department. And... Uh, about uh, a year and a half ago, two years ago, the consulate general was merged into the embassy uh, and, and now is the, uh, I, think, I think it's called the Palestinian Affairs Department in the embassy. So I think we're gonna see the consulate general separated out once again. Mm -hmm. And um, there's probably gonna be an effort to reopen the PLO mission in Washington, which was also closed by the Trump administration 
That one is more difficult due to legislation that has been passed in the interim, um, which is the uh, first the Anti-Terrorism Clarification Act and then uh, an amendment to the Anti-Terrorism Clarification Act. Um, I, won't, <laughs> I, won't, I won't go too deep into the weeds, but uh, the point there is that um, if the Palestinians were to, were to reopen their mission, it would open up the PA and the PLO to personal jurisdiction in US courts uh, for, for terrorism lawsuits. And um, so that's something that obviously the PA and PLO don't wanna do. And that's not something that, that a Biden administration can override. It would have to be new legislation passed to override it. So that one is gonna be a bit more difficult. Um, but you know, overall, there's definitely going to be an effort to not only resume funding, but to really reestablish a relationship with the Palestinians because it isn't simply about the funding. You know, it's also the fact that um, since December 2017, when President Trump announced recognition of Jerusalem and moving the embassy to Jerusalem, the Palestinians have, have boycotted uh, the U.S. government for all intents and purposes. And you know, that, that led to the U.S. then uh, shuttering the consulate and cutting off funding. And so there's really no mechanism left for the U.S. to, to speak to the Palestinians in any type of uh, robust way outside of security channels. And I think that the Biden administration is really first and foremost going to look to just reestablish that basic relationship so that we can have a dialogue once again. Thanks for that. Very, very detailed, useful. Um, so now shifting our attention to uh, the Biden administration's approach and relationship with Israel and the Israeli government. Um, perhaps first we should briefly talk about this, this tweet that Netanyahu sent that, that caused uh, quite uh, a stir on, on the interwebs. Um, how much should we read, read into that in terms of what he said, the precise language he used, um, and perhaps also if you can briefly you know, describe to us what, what, what exactly happened there? Sure. So um, you know, a lot of people are, are dunking on Prime Minister Netanyahu for this um, because no. he waited, he waited um, a few hours to acknowledge uh, Joe Biden's election as president after the networks in the U.S. had all called it. Uh, and then when he, when he finally tweeted, the tweet congratulated Joe Biden and uh, Kamala Harris, but did not refer to them as president-elect uh, and vice president-elect. Now, to my mind, <laughs> this is kind of a, a tempest in a teapot. Um, mm -hmm. We all know what he was congratulating them for. Right? He, wasn't, he, wasn't con he congratulated them, and, I, and I'm, I'm pretty sure uh, said you know, he looks forward to working with them. You know, he, wasn't, he wasn't congratulating them for a, for a, a well-fought race that they lost. <laughs> um, so you know, I, I think this is, this is just the, the latest demonstration of why this idea that President Trump is the best thing that ever happened to Israel is a bit more complicated than that. Um, because President Trump is famously transactional. He, um, as he says publicly all the time, he, he expects loyalty from people. Um, and it's pretty clear that Prime Minister Netanyahu didn't refer to uh, Joe Biden as president-elect because he doesn't want to anger President Trump. And he's afraid that if he does something to anger President Trump, it will somehow rebound back against Israel and President Trump will uh, do something to harm Israel on the way out of office. Now, you know, in any normal presidency, that would be an absurd concern to have. The fact that Prime Minister Netanyahu does have that concern, and I should add, I think it's probably a valid and legitimate concern. 
um, should give people pause because it's just, as I said, the, the latest example of the way that even for all of the things that President Trump has done that the Israeli government and much of the Israeli people have loved, you know, four years later, this notion that you still have to walk on eggshells around him for fear of, of angering him if you say the wrong thing um, really uh, takes the wind out of the sails that, that he's, uh, of the idea that he's somehow uh, this great, this great friend and, and lover of Israel. And I'll just add one more thing on top of that, which is that before the election, uh, a couple of weeks ago, um, when uh, President Trump and Prime Minister Netanyahu were having a public call to tout uh, the normalization process between Israel and Sudan, uh, and President Trump uh, said to Prime Minister Netanyahu, uh, hey, Bibi, do you think that Sleepy Joe could have done something like this? And Prime Minister Netanyahu kind of deftly avoided it and, uh, you know, and, and responded something to the effect of, uh, you know, we, we, appreciate, we appreciate that you know, anything that any, any American leader does to, to help us out. There were then reports that uh, President Trump was, was angry with Prime Minister Netanyahu and that Prime Minister Netanyahu had to, had to call other officials in the White House to make sure that President Trump wasn't too upset and wasn't going to do something, you know, in, in retaliation. So, um, you know, this is, this, is what, this is what everybody on the world stage has had to deal with for four years. And uh, I'm sure that even Prime Minister Netanyahu is somewhat relieved that um, that kind of uh, personal, personal aspect of this will be taken out of the equation going forward. So going forward, looking at uh, a Biden administration, what are the signs we should look for to see how his administration will approach Israel? Is it, you know, about an invitation to the White House for Prime Minister Netanyahu? Is Biden going to speak to Gantz given, you know, the political situation and rotating premiership in Israel? Um, or is it something even along the lines of who the Secretary of State will be? You, met, you mentioned Anthony Blinken, who people say is, is the front runner. Susan Rice's name has also been, been floated. So what, what are these signs that, that we should be looking out for? I wouldn't read too much into Biden's high-level appointments in terms of Israel, right? He's, you know, he's not going to, he's not, as much as every country in the world and Israelis particular, particularly like to think of themselves as, as, as the center of everything, as, as do Americans. Um, you know, I, I don't think that um, whoever gets appointed Secretary of State, uh, I don't think that um, how that will be viewed in Israel is going to be, you know, a consideration even, even remotely. Um, I think, you know, Biden has a long track record with regard to Israel, given how the decades he spent in the Senate and the eight years he spent as vice president. I think he's been, um, he's been very clear and upfront about his views of things. He calls himself a Zionist. He uh, certainly is a stalwart supporter of Israel's security. He's also been very clear that he views uh, settlements as a problem insofar as they make uh, a two-state outcome harder to achieve. He's been very clear that he's, he's against annexation. Um, and I think that what you see is, is really what you're going to get. Um, I, I don't think that uh, he's, even going to, he's even going to flirt with the idea of conditioning security assistance to Israel. Um, but he's also not going to take the Trump administration approach of saying that anything that goes on in, in the West Bank is, is perfectly fine. Um, now, one complicating factor uh, is that if his priority at the beginning in terms of the region is figuring out how to, uh, how to re-enter some sort of deal with Iran, that is obviously going to cause friction with the Israeli government, as, as we all remember 
that it did uh, with the Obama administration. And so, you know, my hunch is that uh, President Biden is not going to want to be fighting with the Israeli government on multiple fronts. Um, and so, I expect that a Biden administration will privately make make very clear to the Israeli government you know, what its stance is on the West Bank and on annexation and on, on settlements, and that it doesn't want to see uh, you know it doesn't want to see expansion of those types of activities. But I don't think you're going to have the same high level and public fighting over over every announcement about settlements or settlement construction. I think that the message is likely to be to the Israelis something along the lines of, you know, don't do don't do anything rash. Stop talking about annexation. Um, stop you know expanding as fast as you can uh, in the West Bank, particularly in uh, particularly in, in settlement outposts. Um, you know, don't cause us any any problems on that front. And you know, we'll make sure to to consult with you and, and bring you in as much as we can when it comes to what we're thinking about with Iran negotiations. My guess is that that's going to be the approach on day one. Uh, and it'll, you know, if that's the case, it'll be up to Prime Minister Netanyahu to decide whether he wants to um, take a take kind of a friendlier, more conciliatory approach to a Biden administration, or whether he thinks it's to his advantage to have a more adversarial stance, which did benefit him politically uh, at home domestically with regard to the Obama administration. So, you know, I think that uh, that ball will probably be in Prime Minister Netanyahu's court and he'll decide what to do. Thanks for that. So perhaps we can end with, with this question, which in fact is kind of taking a step back from the relationship between Netanyahu and Biden and looking at sort of the longer term trend of the U.S.-Israel relationship. Now, we saw that the vast majority of American Jews voted for Biden in last week's election, while polls in Israel before the election showed that Israelis overwhelmingly um, preferred Trump as, as president. So what do you think this means more broadly in terms of that relationship, in terms of Israel's relationship, perhaps specifically with the U.S.'s Democratic Party? Israeli Jews and American Jews are, uh, are literally flipped on this, right? About 75% of, of American Jews voted for Biden and about 75% of Israeli Jews uh, supported, supported Trump. Um, so certainly the Jewish communities are, are pretty far apart. But within US politics, there is a widespread recognition that Israel is a US ally, an important US ally, a, a, critical, a critical asset in the Middle East. Um, you know, there's been lots of focus on the loudest anti-Israel voices within the Democratic Party. Uh, you know, I read the Israeli press every day religiously, and you know you think that, that Ilhan Omar and Rashid Tlaib and, and AOC are, are kind of the you know speaker speaker of the house and, and chairwomen of, of the appropriations and, and foreign affairs committees, and that's just that's just not the case, right? They um, they are popular within the Democratic base, but at the end of the day, they are backbenchers within the Democratic caucus, and the overwhelming majority of Democrats base not just on their statements, but on the votes they take in Congress. Um, they're pro two states. They are pro security assistance to Israel, really come hell or high water. Um, they, don't, they don't even nod or wink toward the BDS movement. Um, but they are frustrated with Israeli government moves in the West Bank and particularly with annexation. And um, long term, 
if the Israeli government keeps on pursuing the policies that it has in the West Bank and keeps on talking about annexation and keeps on, you know, even now in the wake of the Abraham Accords, talking about it not as something that's off the table, but as something that's simply a, a temporary halt and that will resume in a couple of years, um, what you're going to see in the Democratic Party is increasing, increasingly elected officials who who are willing to condition military assistance to Israel and who do question the U.S.-Israel relationship. We're not there yet by any means. Um, and certainly, uh, you know, there were many folks who, who thought, and, uh, and I'll, I'll say I, I was in this camp, there were many folks who thought that um, Hillary Clinton in 2016 was likely to be the last Democratic nominee to, to kind of take a traditional Democratic stance toward Israel, you know, kind of mm-hmm. what we've seen from you know, what we saw from, from Bill Clinton and from Democratic politicians at large. Joe Biden fits very much into that mold. I think he's probably even more conservative on Israel issues than Hillary Clinton was. But this isn't going to continue um, if the friction over policies in the West Bank remains. And so, you know, what, I, what I'd say is, under a Biden administration, Israel does not have to be concerned that, that some of the, the you know, worst case scenarios are going to come to light because they just will not. Um, but, you know, I, I'm not quite as confident that that will be the case 20 or 30 years from now uh, if the situation in the West Bank remains as it is. Yeah. Well, Michael, thank you so much for your time again and for your insight. Uh, this was tremendous. I hope our listeners benefited from it. I certainly did. So thank you for joining us. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Happy to do it anytime.